felt like there was a space where you could really just say, yeah, my father committed suicide when I was four and it devastated me for the rest of my life. And my father committed suicide when he was 43 and I'm 43 now. And, you know, and I have, <laughs> I can kind of understand through the prism of my own life uh, what, what he might have experienced and empathize with it really. I don't feel anger towards him because of that. And I also don't feel anger towards him because of the brief moment that we had together where he really was an anchor for me. And I feel the gift of that, even though it was cut short. When I met Lou, uh, I pulled in and it was a long day. It was one of those hot days and I got lost. I was, um, Lou and his wife live in a really cool area of Baltimore. And for whatever reason, I was like going in circles and I finally pull up and um, his two young daughters come out and they're totally adorable. They have sidewalk chalk. They're kind of transfixed by the motorcycle and I have this huge jacket on and, you know, this crazy helmet and, and on the helmet I have a seahorse decal because I do love seahorses. And so we start talking about seahorses and I meet his wife and then Lou eventually comes out and he goes down these steps of the, their house and comes out to meet me and he's so sweet and tender and you'll hear that through the episode um he's a soft-spoken fella and he and i shared around four hours um, of time focused on the project and the interview and it was an incredibly powerful day for me i learned a lot from lou and lou is also the only guy who i had the opportunity to interview who had lost his father at a young age and to get started, you know, I just asked Lou if he could share some of his earliest memories with his father. I come from a very big family. I've got five sisters, and then there's my mother and my grandfather, but I have just, for some reason, his presence was this, the one that was strongest in my, in my memory from that time. And it's possible that, you know, <laughs> the reason it got stronger was because of his absence later on, but, but really that was... That seems to be the, he, he, seemed, he was kind of the center of my world at that age. One of my most vivid memories is of the day that we left Vietnam and uh, he got us all into his Jeep and uh, took us out to the military airport in Saigon. We were ushered onto the military cargo plane and uh, he stayed behind. We left Vietnam, we were drop off uh, at Wake Island in the Pacific uh, for a few days uh, to be processed, I think. And then we were taken to more permanent uh, refugee quarters in uh, Camp Pendleton in San Diego. And we stayed there for three months. I never knew the difficulty that my mom was going through. She apparently had every morning at the crack of dawn uh, gotten herself up and walked for like three miles to the office where there would be notifications of new people coming in looking for my father and then no uh, just never happened and then at some point she received a letter from uh, relatives in france because um they were the only ones who c could communicate with relatives in vietnam because uh, they didn't have difficulty with the communists and then you know that's how she found out that he had died I later found out when I went back to Vietnam in about uh, 1999, I talked to 
my uncle, who was who was my mother's uh, older brother, and he said that uh, my father had tried to leave in the days after we left, and he'd gotten to the coast to a, a city called Nyajang, which was a coastal city where a lot of people had uh, gone, uh, fled to try to find uh, fishing boats, any kind of vessel that they could take to to escape. When he got there, it was too late; they were all gone. So he went back to uh, back to Saigon, and and then uh, one night he took an overdose, uh, and and um, and he died. So I didn't know about any of this. I didn't even know that he had died. I I uh, spent uh, pretty much uh, my whole childhood uh, believing that he was still in Vietnam, and no one disabused me of that idea. Um, I even remember seeing my mom. I knew she was struggling and having difficulty, and in my child's mind, I thought, oh, I've got to help my mom. I've got to cheer her up somehow. And the way I would do that would I would I, <laughs> I would imagine myself uh, growing up to be a, a fighter pilot, and because that was the only way I could, I could think of to to fly a plane back to Vietnam and and, uh, and rescue my dad. So I would tell her that. I'll do this for you. Somehow it made me feel better. It made me feel like I had some power because it was something of the uh, something I could promise to do in the distant future. There wasn't anything I needed to do right now, so it gave me a little bit of a reprieve. I think I felt such a deep sense of responsibility to try to fill that void somehow. I was trying to fill that void in myself, and I, I could sense that it was devastating for my mother, too, and I was trying to help her, because I really, I think what I'm realizing is that I really, now that my father was gone, I was really dependent on her, really dependent on her as being the, uh, the source of, uh, of, of safety for me, and uh, to see her so fragile, made me feel very fragile, very uh, afraid to see her sometimes not really, I not really, I sometimes sense that she didn't really know how to continue living and it made me terrified that I would lose her too. And I really took on the responsibility to make her okay. Uh, in the meantime, I, I, I took on, you know, a responsibility that I couldn't fulfill and then I had this gaping Void of myself of like I, I don't really feel safe myself, and, you know. So on top of the non-safety, I was trying to take care of someone else's safety, which wasn't never going to be tenable. We moved to Minnesota in about uh, 1980, and that was about five years after we came to America. And it was at that time that my uh, father's ashes were brought to us. And it was then that I knew with certainty of his death. I, I just understood his absence as a, a, a temporary thing. I really didn't believe that he, would, he was gone forever. And um, I certainly didn't know that he had committed suicide, taken his own life. I had uh, this I idea that he was uh, an apparition that followed our family around. You know, uh, 
and that has a little bit to do with the uh, Vietnamese traditions of uh, when when someone dies, you create an altar. Every day, the altar is replenished with fruits and offerings to the ancestor, and so there's a sense in the in the household that that the, the dead are still there with you. And and my mom herself would often talk to my father when she really had great great difficulty. I would overhear her asking him for help and that kind of thing. You know, there were seven kids total. I was second to the youngest. I had a little sister. She did her very best to just keep us alive, I think. And she, I remember her having jobs uh, where she had to take the night shift and she would leave at 10 o'clock at night and then not come back until the middle of the night. And then during the day, take care, <laughs> take care of us. So there wasn't really room to say, Lou, are you okay? You know, is there anything bothering you? And you know, that kind of thing just never happened. And she leaned pretty heavily on me, I think, in some ways, because uh, I was one of, you know, I was so young, and I was very close to her because of, of my youth, my be, being a child. And um, I feel that like in some way she, she, she had a, a almost an emotional dependence on me, you know, and and I on her, obviously it was mutual, but um, so I was very sensitive to her states of being and especially to her, to her suffering. I was very sensitive to that. Once I knew that he had died, the way that that fantasy kind of extended itself was that I felt like I had to now fill his shoes and fulfill on the promise that was cut short for him, and it was the uh, the idealization of him that I was trying to fulfill. It wasn't really anything that I knew, you know, about him. Uh, I mean, I knew some things. I knew he was a scholar. I knew he had written poetry, and and um, you know, very unusually creative man for the time and place he he came from, and his own background, you know. Um, in order to continue that feeling of being related to him and connected to him, that I felt like I had to do those things too somehow, and um, it's just a weird thing, like almost like having a ghost walking in your body. <laughs> but there was another motivation, which indirectly came from him, which was that I needed to really express these difficult emotions that I was feeling because of the loss the grief that I actually never had a chance to express as a child, because I didn't know he was, he had died. I didn't know he had died, and um, I never got a chance to cry really for his for his death. Um, I wasn't going to be able to do it through science and math, that's for sure. You know, um, but the the creative expression and the and the the way that people listen to to that expression helped me so much because you know I really needed someone to hear what I was what was kind of screaming inside of me um, you know I did become an actor and a playwright after I graduated from college it was a time when I was able to kind of really use the emotional turmoil inside of myself and and, and make some use of it I could transmit the really strong negative emotions of anger and grief and longing either onto the page or or through my performance but ultimately there was uh, that sense of failure was 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 always there and and what happened was uh, I just became depressed I had um, clinical depression at age 30 and 
I was so confused about what was going on because I couldn't sleep. And one day I just read a, an article in, in uh, Time Magazine, I think it was, and it said these are the 10 symptoms of depression. And I checked off each symptom. And, and that was when I went to uh, seek therapy for the first time. But I'm not really sure in the end whether I digested it or I just was able to kind of press it down further. At some point, I, I, I wasn't experiencing that intense emotion. And it was at that point that I actually met my wife. And, and um, you know, we, we dated and then we got married and we moved here to Baltimore. And we had children, um, which I'd always wanted to have children. And I had these beautiful daughters. Um, and I decided to stay at home and uh, take care of them. And I don't know, but maybe uh, having the children and feeling like I could really no longer just live for myself, but I really needed to be there for them. Uh, I felt some. I felt this intense desire to actually not have the <laughs> struggle inside of myself. And ironically, that that desire actually produced more of the struggle and it actually it actually brought to the surface those things that I really pushed down inside and um, I had such difficulty uh, in my marriage and then finally we we, uh, we we sought therapy and it was in the therapy couples therapy that uh, our, our therapist suggested that I go see a trauma specialist because one of the things that we had mentioned to him was how I would have these episodes of rage and anger and they would come out of nowhere and I would really just feel out of, totally out of control in that moment. And he asked me, um, do those feelings persist over days or, I said, no, they just happen in that moment and then they, they really go away. But it, it suggested to him that it was some sort of trauma. And, and uh, on the one hand, I was kind of relieved to know that maybe there was some explanation for what was going on. But on the other hand, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, this can't be right. I, I've gotten, I've gone through all of this. I've, I've overcome all of these things. Uh, you know, this is so far in the past, and I have a normal life now. I have a wife and a child and children. And I, in the process, though, of therapy that I've been doing, I've really learned to touch those raw spots and the, the, the woundedness and it's alleviated a lot of the, the anger response because you know underneath that all those years of, of those responses of, of anger and rage was that sense of helplessness and that sense of fear and that I couldn't really allow myself to feel but now I'm allowing it and it's 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 actually uh, more real I feel more in touch I feel more in touch with my children with my wife and now that I'm aware of the nature of, of, of these emotions that I've been so confused by all these years I know that it was a bit of a gift in a way that it was cut short because I got to experience really the needs of a child what a child really needs I'm not sure that I would have had that awareness if I I hadn't had such a such rawness in my childhood uh, so in a way i'm continuing the that particular aspect of the work that my father was doing which is you know he was 
creating a sense of safety for me and now I can do it for my children. And uh, that's a great, you know, that's a great, that's a great thing. I just feel like I can be such a benefit for them in that way. Seeing them grow up with, uh, in touch with their emotions, in touch with their fears, but not overwhelmed by them is such a, you know, for me is is it's exactly what I would have liked to have had but even though I couldn't have it, I'm able to give it to them. And um, and in some way, I knew what to give because of what my father gave me in that short time that we were together. So I do feel a deep connection to him through the suffering and through the way that I'm trying to transform the suffering into something uh, that's beneficial. I felt that connection to him when I was holding my daughters and I felt my own fatherhood <laughs> and I felt his fatherhood when I when I held her and it was just the most beautiful thing because I, I, there was no chance that I would ever really, I mean, I could never really feel that the, the connection to him prior to that, except through maybe his writing and feeling like, okay, I should be a writer and I should be, you know, that kind of thing. That was how I was connecting to him was through the work that he did in the world outside of his family, you know. That was always a, there was always a little bit of distance there because I wasn't, it wasn't really how I experienced him. I experienced him as a father, not as a writer and a poet and that kind of thing, you know, even though that was how I was trying to connect to him because that's the only way I knew at the time. And it wasn't until I had children that I really, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that just blossomed and, and it felt really full for me. Um, I was, I think in my freshman year in college, um, context was basically I was trying to be a pre-med and um, I, I changed my major to history because I didn't want to go all the way over to English <laughs> but in the meantime I took a couple of poetry classes and some creative nonfiction classes and there were small seminars of 13 12 13 people it was like a group therapy session basically but, you know, was, but really was a chance to be around other people who were in touch with their emotions and finding ways to express them uh, that were coherent in some way. And, and actually having people understand my experiences of really strong emotions. And they listened when I told them about my father's death. They somehow seemed to understand the connection between that and who I am. Whereas in the past, when I lived in Minnesota especially, um, I never felt comfortable mentioning my father's death to people. Because um, for one thing, I sensed that everyone wanted me to be like that great, the perfect immigrant American dream story, you know, that, okay, he's gone through all this adversity and here he is, you know, getting a great education and doing really well. And I never felt like there was a space where you could really just say, yeah, my father committed suicide when I was four and it, devastated me for the rest of my life but but there was another motivation which indirectly came from him which was that I needed to really express these difficult emotions that I was feeling because of the loss the grief that I actually never had a chance to express as a child because I didn't know he was he had died I didn't know he had died and um I never got a chance to cry really for his for his death. 
I wasn't going to be able to do it through science and math, that's for sure. You know, um, but the the creative expression and the the way that people listen to to that expression helped me so much because you know I really needed someone to hear what I was what was kind of screaming inside of me. I was at Berkeley and I remember going to the library and looking up my father's name in the card catalog because Berkeley during the Vietnam War had been collecting a lot of the literary journals and the cultural journals from South Vietnam and they had issues of them in, in the library and um, I was actually able to find journals that he had written for and, and, I, and I found his writings at the college that I was at and uh, it was just you know it really then I began to really want to know more and to seek more at that point I'm not sure who it was in my family that that showed me but I finally saw the uh, letter that he'd written to um, to the kids and he and it he wrote a fairy tale about uh, a man who he described as a wizard and a, a man of great power and like a magician um, who had with all of it, one day he, he just felt very alone and isolated. And so with his powers and with all his heart, he created these seven stars that he threw up into the sky. It's this great power he has in me. And these star children emanated from, from that desire to have connection. And they flew in the sky and they kept rising higher and you know shining brighter. And that, that was in the story. And But then one day um, he noticed that they were descending again and coming closer to the earth no longer continuing on their journey they were actually reversing their journey he made the decision to to uh, to kill himself so that they could continue their journey and by removing himself he, he could help them to let go I guess yeah and, and return to the journey into the in, in, into the world, into brightness, into you know whatever it was that they were destined to create. At that time, did it help you understand more of his death, of how you understood his death? Yeah, I, I did. It did. It, it softened his. Uh, it softened number one my my resentment. I actually remember spending many weeks on the project of translating it into English as a way of getting closer to him. You know, it's like sometimes they, they t you talk about, people talk about the work of translation as a way of understanding the, the person who wrote what they wrote in the original language. And um, it, it was like a way to, to know him on a, on a level beyond the the level I knew him as a child, which was just this this energy that I felt. Um, I could kind of sense what his purpose might have been, what his intention might have been, um, or at least I could guess through that letter. It was very sad for me to know how isolated he felt. I mean, in this story, he's he's this magician who has all this power but yet feels such loneliness but at the same time thinking about us he wrote it in such a way that we could interpret it as he wanted us to continue and that's why he did what he did i still don't really know what prompted him to 
commit suicide. I mean, I know that it was a terrible situation. It was kind of, was completely trapped in Vietnam, but he must have felt a deep sense of lonely, loneliness and really like totally untethered. And it, it's strange, but I have those experiences myself. Sometimes I feel a deep sense of like, I don't feel tethered to this life. And I, in those moments, I, want, I, I think to myself, you know, if, I, if it just ended now, it would be fine for me. Um, and especially if I'm in a deep sense of pain, it's like, oh, I just wish it would end, you know. And so I can kind of, I just imagine that there was something like that happening for him when he was, when he'd realized that all his avenues of, of escape were gone, that likely he would be, um, at that time, a lot of the uh, officers in the South Vietnamese army were being rounded up. People expected them to be executed, and many of them ended up going later to re-education camps, we found out, but um, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of confusion, a lot of frightening things happening at that time. And, but I think given those circumstances and possibly his own makeup, which I've inherited, you know, that it makes sense in some ways for me that he did that. Now that I think about it, it makes sense that he wrote the letter that he did to his children, which was full of you know, beautiful images and, 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 and hopeful things, even though it was a suicide note. I feel so, I feel tethered to this life through my children, through my wife, through the people that I can, you know, through others, through others, that's how I feel connected. I'm not sure what would happen if those connections kind of weren't there. I'm not sure if I would have the life force to continue. I'm not sure, but you know, I may. I don't know, but it feels, I feel really dependent on those connections. Were there times or have there been times when you thought, you know, what happens if I take my own life? You think that might be your legacy as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I've had those thoughts pretty recently too. Um, but I know now that they're, they're just a part of my psychological makeup. They are energies in me that, that, that arise. Um, what helps to dissipate them is, for instance, my, my wife, I'm so grateful for her because she can actually, we've been through this process where she, I've been able to share with her what's happening for me and, and she understands. And when I get to that place, she doesn't retreat and you know become fearful but she actually comes to me and 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 holds me and just that human connection uh allows me to dissipate that energy of of you know those suicidal thoughts and that which is really just an energy of of uh uh disconnection it's like i feel to alienated from life and alienated from my being <laughs> yeah um and i'm really in touch with that that place in me that feels uh, that has no sense of safety, no sense of cohesion, that that never really fully developed as a child. And when I get in, totally in touch with that, my feeling of connection to life, connection to the the vitality of my life, it, it gets totally lost. And, and that's kind of the the sense that I have. But when you know, in that moment. Um, I think if I didn't have people around me, like my wife and my children, um, to kind of embrace me and, and allow me to uh, gently 
experience that feeling and then let it dissipate the way it, you know it, they all dissipate at some point you know but if i didn't have that around me uh, i'm not sure i don't know that i have the capacity to dissipate it myself i think what happens for me is that once that feeling comes the natural process for me is to to, to spiral into this this dark abyss and uh, it's very hard for me to get off that spiral and uh, and that all it is is just a very strong energy and it has its origins in this event that happened in my life and the subsequent kind of circumstances around that and the fact that I you know grew up without really a sense of of, of, of internal safety so I really look for I look around externally for safety and so I really depend on the people around me like that. I've always wanted to have children. And then part of that is because I knew my father was a, a really good father. It's ironic because you would think that, you know, uh, his committing suicide would make people feel uh, anger towards him or whatever, uh, resentment, but really there was only just love and appreciation of him within my family and um, you know all that all that all the things that mattered to me about him um, and now have a chance to kind of put into reality into practice um, and uh, it's like a continuation you know it's like a continuation of him and uh, um, it's a more real continuation than the than the imagined uh, fantasies that I had as a child. Um, I can make real use of that that energy that I connected so much to from from the little time that I spent with them. Yeah, and then and you know taking care of them has taught me how I could take care of that little four year old boy inside of myself too. You know, and that's that's that was that's also the benefit of. And you know, I suppose therein lies, I guess, maybe the parallel is that you know I'm taking care of that four-year-old boy that he would have taken care of if he had stayed alive, or doing his work. <laughs> when our conversation was over, it was a real emotional deep dive into not only Lou but also to get a sense of how much of uh, bolstering that his wife um, gives him as a partner and their love for one another. And it was so apparent, you know, uh, seeing it when I first met them. But then after having this conversation with him, I was really enamored by both of them and how they parented and seeing Lou with his daughters and how tender and sweet he was and affectionate and thoughtful and such a, you know, a caring, tender man. You know, they treated me to lunch, which was really generous and, you know, uh, I ended up getting on my bike and I ended up going, um, I don't remember how many miles it was, but into Connecticut that evening um, and met with one of my very best friends. And the next morning we had the christening for he and his wife, who's also a dear friend, their son. Um, and it was like this really powerful cycle of you know life and reflection that I was afforded in that 24-hour period. And... Um, I'm so grateful for, for Lou taking the time and for his family being so welcoming and, and open. You know, after that, 
I basically mom my journey north and the next episode you're going to hear is with a man by the name of Paul Tedesco who is 85 years old at the time of our recording he lost his father when he was 20 years old and he was a freshman at Harvard it's a lot of interesting insights and reflections that he's had over the past 65 years in not only his father's life but his father's death and and also how others in his family have been affected by suicide including his granddaughter so please tune into that as well. Thanks for listening.